1: From the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Moves and here's... You need to know a Trumpian trade truce hopes rise ahead of a presidential meet with Chinese negotiators later today positive signals the EU raising hopes of a Brexit deal breakthrough sterling jumps and if all else fails we'll talk flying cars Boeing and Porsche teaming up and taking off it's Friday let's make a move first move once again. Happy Friday. Lots going on once again this morning. We've got a moment of trade truth, potentially. We've also got a Brexit breakthrough, potentially too. All I can say is first move has lots of potential today, as always, potentially. Investors certainly think so. Take a look at what we're seeing for US futures at this moment, futures rallying, looking to add to yesterday's half a percentage point gains, too. Also boosted this morning as well by energy stocks. And I'll explain why shortly in a few moments' time. Guys, we may be detail light on all of these potential breakthroughs, but I tell you, the mood is positive. President Trump, first and foremost, meeting with the Chinese Vice Premier Liu He later today. He said yesterday, and I'll quote him Talks are going very well. Yes. We've heard that once or twice or many times before, but it does feel like a face-to-face meeting between these two gentlemen is, is key here and it is fueling expectations of some kind of mini deal here to delay the tariff rises set to kick in next week. That's the hope, at least. The question is, will it be tariff tears or a tariff juice triumph? We should know much more later today. Trade optimism, though, helping to boost European stocks. Take a look at these two. Asian shares finishing the week higher as well the Shanghai Composite. Take a look at that seeing its largest rise in a month. And what's interesting here overall to me is that October began as the worst start to a quarter on Wall Street for a decade. But if we hold on to the pre-market gains that we're seeing today, and I appreciate that could be a long shot, we could virtually erase the month's losses so far. We're kicking off trading today with the Dow and the S&P 500 down more than 1%. But hope certainly floats let's get to the drivers right now because Claire Sebastian joins us and she's been reading the trade truce tea leaves Claire we have heard the president be optimistic before and then all bets are off with the
2: next tweet but right now the meeting between Lou her and the president today feels important very important, Julia. I think uh, both sides are aware in this trade war that nothing really gets done until the principles are at the table. And it has been a while since they were. But yes, look, a sense of uh, of slightly improved optimism from quite a low bar, I will say, going into this. The president saying uh, that the negotiations so far have been going very well. Sources telling uh, our White House team that progress yesterday, which involved uh, uh, the Vice Premier Luher and the U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, uh, that they, they went better than expected. Apparently they blew through a planned uh, lunch break, such was the, the momentum of the talks. But but you're right in saying that, that really the sense is that we're not going to get an overarching deal here. There's not going to be real progress on the structural issues that the U.S. has been pushing for. The real core of this trade war from the beginning, which are things like uh, intellectual property rights in China, market access, uh, industrial subsidies, uh, forced technology transfer, all of those things that frankly have bipartisan support, and support even from businesses in the U.S. Uh, Julia, really they're looking more at Things like, you know, currency agreements, perhaps a pact that would avoid China uh, devaluing its currency, increased Chinese agricultural purchases, which would uh, reduce that that trade deficit that President Trump uh, hates so much. And, and anything really that will avert the, the tariff increase that we're expecting uh, on October 15th. That is really what they're thinking here.
1: Yeah, and this is so key as well. It's the medium term and the longer term if you're talking about the thorny issues like technology theft, intellectual property protections. In the short term, at least politically for the president, it would help to have a deal that supports the manufacturing sector and the agricultural sectors that have felt recessionary for a while. Let's play devil's advocate, Claire, here. What happens if we don't see an agreement? What tariffs
2: on what are set to kick in in the coming weeks? Yeah, this is crucial because, of course, I think if anything is certain about this trade war, it's that we don't know what's going to happen until it happens. It's all very unpredictable and based uh, on on the moods and, and the happenings in the room and the tweets that come after. Julia, I think we can pull up that that graphic that we just had on screen. The next shoe to drop is next week, next Tuesday, October fifteenth. The tariff rate on 250 billion dollars worth of Chinese imports to the U.S. will go from 25 to 30 percent. That's mainly uh, interim products used by businesses, but there are some consumer goods on on that there. The next tariff issue is December 15th, a 15% tariff on about 156 billion of Chinese Chinese imports. Now, that is uh, including laptops and smartphones. This is where it really gets interesting for the U.S. consumer, uh, Apple, in the firing line there. Uh, And there's another one we should mention, the Huawei waiver. This is a waiver that allows uh, U.S. businesses to continue to do business with Huawei on a limited basis. That expires On November 18th, there was a report this week that the Trump administration was considering granting some licenses to U.S. businesses that would would go beyond uh, that waiver when it expires. But that is not confirmed. And this, of course, a crucial issue for China.
1: Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Just listening to that, the timing here, Key, heading into the Christmas shopping season in particular, but also how low our expectations have been bought that actually just a ceasefire and not seeing these final tariffs applied um, is a cause for optimism
2: here, Claire. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's where we are, Julia. Certainly uh, expectations have been royally reset over the past, not just not just week or so, but but we saw what happened in August where, you know, the U.S. Uh, labelled China a currency manipulator, various uh, retaliatory tariffs were announced uh, by China. Things have, have really been difficult since the talks broke down uh, in May. There's really been very little progress to speak of. So, so a lot of, of talk here, a few optimistic noises, uh, but ultimately we don't really know how they're going to make real progress uh, on the big issues as such. The, the, the best-case scenario, Julia, as we say, is that they avert those those tariff increases going forward and that we move towards a meeting between President Trump and his counterpart president Xi in November at the APEC summit. But of course, we've been here before. It felt very similar last year, so again, uh, very mm-hmm. difficult to see at this stage where, where exactly this is going. Yeah, it's such a great point. But again, that key meeting between the
1: presidents, an important watchword or announcement today to watch out for. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Right, let's move to the UK now. the UK pound is leaping on Brexit deal. Optimism right now up uh, nearly 2% versus the US dollar. The EU says it's getting positive signals regarding a potential Brexit deal. Nick Robertson is back with us on this story. Nick, you and I were doing our best to curb enthusiasm and manage expectations yesterday. Is this tactically positive spin or are you sensing that something material may have changed in the last 24 hours?
3: Uh, I, I think we're where we were. However, the positivity that came out of that meeting between Boris Johnson, British Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, the Irish Prime Minister, of the t talk yesterday is in the air. Clearly, um, look, there were caveats applied to that. The markets have responded the way that they will. It is positive. We've heard Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator, today after a meeting with his British counterpart, uh, Stephen Barclay, um, both saying that the meeting was constructive. Barnier now saying that they're ready to intensify talks, but he's also talking about it as being a mountain to climb. You've got to remain vigilant. You've got to remain patient. Um, One diplomat has talked about this tunnel as being, uh, you know, which is kind of the language that's used for this intensifying discussions, though no one's saying they're in the tunnel, but there's a small light on the tunnel. I, I think we're still at that stage of, look, I mean, let's feel good about where we are. Let's respond to that. But the reality is there's still a long way to go. And I think key in all of this, you know, if you really want to be sitting on the markets with a big ear to the political machinations here is what have you heard from number 10 downing street since yesterday you've heard nothing so that tells you this is very sensitive otherwise you know boris johnson might have been tempted to put his spin on how everything went very sensitive stage still
1: Yeah, the only thing that feels short about that tunnel, quite frankly, at this stage, Nick, is the time we've got to get to the end of it, which is, of course, uh, the 19th of October, potentially, or having to request an extension. What might Boris have had to give up here very quickly? Because that was my read from this. What did Boris have to concede in order to get this optimism from the EU?
3: So the two big sticking points yesterday were were customs and consent. Now, customs, the issue of an open border across the border of Northern Ireland, no, no customs barrier there, That that's the uh, EU barrier. So um, Leo Varadkar, the Irish Prime Minister, came out and said he'd seen positive, positive movements from the British Prime Minister on that. Consent is the other big issue here that people are talking about, the consent of the people of Northern Ireland to whatever is agreed here because it's going to affect them and the border. Um, Leo Varadko yesterday talked about consent in the terms of Um, the long-term final arrangements, which is less than what Boris Johnson had put on the table before, which was sort of a more immediate consent, and then a rolling consent, which was not acceptable to the EU after that. So where has the ground been given? I go back to the point that we haven't heard from from Boris Johnson. And the reason is that his margin for movement on this is small, because a Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland would would, would have a hard time giving up any of the proposals had put forward so far. Consent will be an important sell for them to their constituency. Customs and the border, again, a tough one.
1: Yeah, and the Brexiteers will be all over him on the other side. <laughs> Nick, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, to the Middle East now for our next driver reports. Two missiles struck an Iranian oil tanker in the Red Sea near the Saudi port of Jeddah. Oil prices are climbing on the news too. Fred Polite joins us now. Fred, great to have you with us. What more do we know? And are the Iranians pointing fingers at any potential culprits here yet?
4: That was pretty unclear earlier today, Julia. It was quite interesting how all of this evolved. Right now, the Iranians say that for the time being, they're not pointing fingers. They are, however, sticking by their story, uh, saying that this tanker, which as you said, was about 60 miles, about 100 kilometers off the coast of or off the port of uh, Jeddah, uh, that it was struck by two missiles. They say this happened in the very early morning hours of today. They say one attack uh, happened at 5 a.m. and one happened at 5:20. Now, it was quite interesting to hear because the head of the national Iranian tanker company, he came out earlier today. And and he said that the tanker had been struck by missiles, possibly launched from Saudi Arabian soil. Those were his words. Now, later, the national Iranian oil company came out and dismissed that report. The current Iranian line is that it's unclear where these uh, attacks were launched from. However, the Iranian foreign ministry has condemned these attacks. Now, as far as the damage is concerned, also some conflicting reports going on there. Initially, uh, we were hearing from the Iranians that both containers of that tanker containing oil uh, had been damaged in that attack, that oil had been been leaking into the Red Sea. Uh, it seems as though from the reporting that we're getting right now that that leak is under control and that tanker, we can confirm now, is actually on the move. The Iranians are saying it's moving at a slow pace back towards uh, the Persian Gulf. The last that I checked on uh, marine trafficking sites uh, was that it seems to be uh, moving at around nine knots an hour uh, at the moment. It's currently seems to be sort of uh, on the height of about Port Sudan still in the Red Sea. So the tanker is moving. The Iranians moving away from uh, uh, saying that the uh, Saudi Arabia might be behind uh, all of this, but still very much uh, in anger, uh, as we've seen from uh, that official reporting there from uh, the Iranians, saying that they believe this was an attack. There's going to be an investigation, and they say someone is going to be held accountable, Julia. Yeah, but watch
1: this space. Fred, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, I'm saving myself to go around the world today. It's coming up after the break. Plenty more to come from First Move. Stay with us. We're back in two. Let's move with a look at some of the stories making headlines around the world. Wildfires are spreading across Southern California. Winds gusting at more than 96 kilometers per hour are fanning the flames and forcing mandatory evacuations in the Los Angeles area. Dozens of homes have already burned and two major freeways have now been shut down. The former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine is expected to testify before Congress as part of the impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump. Marie Ivanovich is due to testify behind closed doors. Suzanne Malvo is in Washington. What do we expect from this? And I made the point it's behind closed doors here, but clearly a lot of people looking to see what we get from this testimony. What are we
5: expecting here? Julia, there's a lot of anticipation about this because, of course, the big question right now within this hour is whether or not she is going to show up to this behind closed doors type of hearing and testimony. That is because before, as you know, she is still a State Department official and before our counterpart, Sondland, was actually pulled just an hour before he was supposed to testify. So there's a lot of questions so far. Everything seems to be a go, but everybody is waiting for a phone call, perhaps even an email. I just spoke with a member of the Intelligence Committee, and uh, they would actually receive notice if there is a change. So having said that, they're assuming that she is coming, she'll be able to answer some questions. She is a key figure. As you know, Yovanovitch was actually named in the whistleblower complaint as somebody who was raising red flags about uh, President Trump's uh, potential abuse of power, using his power with a foreign uh, government uh, to dig up dirt on his political opponent. We also know that she Came in the crosshairs of the president's personal attorney Rudy Giuliani. That he tried to get her dismissed, recalled from her, her position. He ultimately was successful in doing that. There were a lot of unfounded conspiracy theories that were swirling around about her working for George Soros, uh, the liberal donor, or Hillary Clinton. Uh, those, of course, uh, debunked. And then finally, uh, her name is the subject of the phone call, the the uh, infamous phone call, July phone call between President Trump and the Ukrainian President Zelensky in which he says that she is bad news and that there are things that are going to happen to her. Zelensky replying that he agrees 100% and then we heard from the president uh, from the White House again emphasizing that this is someone who is bad news. And so we know that um, she can shed some light on what did she know about Giuliani's role in the, in the diplomacy, the shadow diplomacy that he was engaged in in Ukraine why did she come uh, under such fire from the president and his personal attorney attorney and does she think in fact that it was a political hit job that was done on her when she was removed from her position Julia
1: now I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you mentioned Rudy Giuliani of course uh, President Trump's personal lawyer talk to me about Igor and Lev two associates of, of Rudy Giuliani who were arrested at the airport yesterday with one-way tickets.
5: What do we know about these two characters? And I say characters because that's what they look like. <laughs> uh, there are there are some people who would agree with you that, Julia, that they are characters. But in fact, this it does kind of uh, read almost or sound like some sort of spy novel, if you will. Uh, but yes, they were arrested yesterday. And um, these two individuals... Uh, really are at the center of their relationship here with Rudy Giuliani. It was Giuliani himself who told CNN that these two individuals uh, helped him. Actually, it was their job to try to uh, get information about Trump's political enemies in Ukraine to essentially dig up dirt, including on Joe Biden. Uh, these were also fixers, if you will, in Ukraine, introducing him to people who were former as well as current uh, officials in Ukraine to to help him out here. And they also donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to a pro-Trump political a pack which of course is a violation of campaign finance laws and so these two individuals very much at the heart of this and their documents already subpoenaed by the uh, committees that are conducting this impeachment inquiry, Julia.
1: Yeah, sometimes it feels like we're operating in a parallel universe. Suzanne, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much for giving us the details there. All right, let's bring it back to markets because we are joined by Mohamed el Arian, the Chief Economic Advisor at Allianz. Mohammed, always fantastic to have you with us. I want to get away from politics here and talk about trade and hopes of a, a potential trade truce or deal here. You've said on uh, on Twitter we'll end up somewhere between a mini-deal and a ceasefire. What do you mean by that?
6: So think of conflict resolution going on a spectrum from a very temporary ceasefire to a durable, comprehensive resolution. And in the middle, you have either a truce that holds for a while or you have a mini deal. And I think what the market is, is expecting is a mini deal. And that's quite a move in consensus expectation. However, the market is cautious long term. So you see short term optimism with long term caution.
1: If we bring it back to the thorniest issues here, the intellectual property theft, the, the trade uh, technology theft concerns, that was always going to be a far more difficult agreement to reach. Are you happy with the idea that we have a, a mini deal in the short term that perhaps relieves some of the pressure on the agricultural sector in the United States, perhaps on the manufacturing sector too, with, with tariff relief potentially, and leave those thornier subjects to later, assuming it ever happens?
6: Look, it's a really difficult judgment call, and I'm not in the room. Um, there are those who are going to argue that a mini-deal can be a stepping stone to something bigger. And there's the other side, which will say, no, keep the pressure on, if not now, when? And that's the judgment call that the president is going to have to make. And what complicates things for people like like me trying to evaluate where we're going to end up is there's also the domestic political side playing um, on both sides. So this is a very complex issue, and ultimately, it will be the call of the president of the United States mainly.
1: The other person and team, in fact, that's trying to grapple with the outcomes here is the Federal Reserve and, and Jay Powell. Do you think some form of truce here or a mini deal is enough to stay Jay Powell's hand at the end of this month on further cutting rates, or do you think it's effectively a done deal here and he really has no choice but to comply with market wishes?
6: interestingly market expectations have come down mm. about um, market about the Fed cutting from about 75 percent down all in the in the high 60s having said that it is very hard for the Fed not to validate market expectations from an economic perspective they should not cut they should keep the ammunition dry for when they really need it however, I don't think this is a Fed that's willing to take on the market. So I still think that the baseline is for for another cut in interest rates.
1: The other factor that the Federal Reserve is dealing with on a global basis or at least keeping an eye on is is what's going on in the UK. Critical date, October 31st, the summit coming up at the back end of next week too. What's your assessment of of what you're seeing there in your base case for whether or not a deal can be reached or we see an extension or, or perhaps something else?
6: So again you know julia it's very hard to call the market expects a deal a mini deal so the market is focused on too many deals and it's been trading very much like that whether you look at equities doing better whether you look at yields on government bonds going up or whether you look at currency where the british sterling has been outperforming the market expects too many deals to be announced in the next few weeks and days and if it doesn't get that there's going to be quite a reaction but in both cases there is longer term caution we haven't resolved the longer term issues yet
1: yeah, the other story and there's a reason why i mentioned these three things in succession is greece we all know the concerns that, that the markets had about greece yes we've had leadership change a leader that many people know brussels knows but this week we saw greece being paid to issue debt the greek government now being paid to issue debt Is there a degree of complacency in the market where Greece can raise money for free or be paid to do so, and you keep saying that we're expecting deals and agreements and the the best case scenario here. Should we
5: be worried?
6: Look, we should be worried that markets are distorted. And Greece trading at negative yield, which as you point out, means that you lend to Greece And you pay for the privilege of lending to Greece. Who would have thought that? That is one but a very long list of unthinkables. And if you want to explain these unthinkables in the financial world, you got to point the finger at central banks, and in particular, the European Central Bank. When you run negative policy rates and you tell the world you're going to use... Your printing press in the basement to buy securities. You distort markets. And you encourage people to do things that in a few years' time are going to look very silly. But in the short term, people are trading off the actions of central banks. And the risk is that they are distorting asset allocation. They're encouraging excessive risk-taking. But that is what they have to do when other policymakers aren't stepping up to the plate. That's the big problem, Julia, is that the other policymakers have been paralyzed by the political polarization that we're seeing all over the world.
1: It's part of the answer here by crypto, Mohammed. Get some diversification in there potentially if you're struggling with traditional assets,
6: perhaps. I say part of the answer is to have a layer of what I call regret minimization. The world is highly uncertain unthinkables have become reality. The probability of making a mistake is considerable, not because anybody wants to make a mistake, but because things have become so fluid, so unpredictable. It's this concept of unusual uncertainty. I think when you are navigating that, you want a level of regret minimization, means higher cash, up in quality in the stocks you hold, and cut down the maturity of your fixed income exposure.
1: Yeah, regret minimization. I like it and be vigilant. Mohammed, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining First Move. Mohammed Alian there, Chief Economic Advisor at Allianz. The market opens next. Stay with us. trading session here at the New York Stock Exchange of the week. As expected, a strong start for U.S. equities this morning. Investors awaiting the outcome of the second day of talks between the United States and China. President Trump meeting with China's lead trade negotiator Liu He later today. Him saying, the president saying earlier uh, that the trade talks were going well. As we were discussing before the break, a mini deal between the two countries that could lead to an increased Chinese agricultural purchases. That's also helping give a boost to corn and soybean prices this season too. That said, China imported some 30 million metric tons of soybeans from the US before it suspended purchases this year. So there is a lot of ground to make up. So that's going to be one of the uh, interesting areas to watch here. Even though with a mini deal, stocks won't be completely out of the woods. The earnings season starts again next week with the major US banks reporting course. And once again, trade will be front and foremost in some of the commentary to watch there. Let me talk you through some other global movers this morning. Two shares of streaming service Roku Trading higher. the investment firm Citadel, has taken a 5% stake in the company. This intensifies the Wall Street debate into Roku's worth amid increased competition in the streaming space. SAP shares also rallying this morning. The longtime CEO, Bill McDermott, is stepping down. The German software giant has decided not to renew his contract. Two board members will become co-CEOs of the company. They say SAP is performing well, with little negative effects from the trade war. Slack shares also in focus. The workplace productivity app says daily active users are up some 37% from the same time last year. Its 12 million daily users are now almost on a par with the rival team app from Microsoft. Those are today's global movers. All right, let's bring it back to one of our top stories today, to the Turkish incursion in Syria. The Turkish defence minister is saying this morning that they are determined to, quote, terminate the existence of terrorists. The government says more than 200 people have been killed as its forces press further into northern Syria. Kurdish fighters who helped the U.S. defeat ISIS are believed to be among the dead. Sinan our Damon, is live in northern Syria for us. Ara, what have we seen so far
0: today? Okay. There's a lot of conflicting reports about what the actual death toll is when it comes to the Syrian Kurds, the YPG that Turkey is now attempting to take on inside Syria. If you look behind me, uh, right underneath you have the Turkish town of Jalan Panar and behind that you have the Syrian town of Ras Al Ain. This town in particular has been uh, one of the ones that has really been in the crosshairs of the Turkish forces along with their... uh, Syrian Arab allies on the ground, a fighting force made up of um, former Syrian rebel fighters as they have been pushing through. The Turks are saying that they cleared villages on either side. This fighting has really displaced tens of thousands of people. It has already uh, cost uh, civilian lives. And there are a lot of unanswered questions, especially since by all counts, Turkey is absolutely determined to eradicate what it deems to be an existential terrorist threat emanating from Syria. And And that is because of the historic ties that exist between the Syrian Kurdish fighting force, the YPG, and the Kurdish separatist group that Turkey has been battling for decades, the PKK. Turkey is issuing severe warnings to anyone who dares to criticize it. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is telling his Western allies that if they criticize this operation, and this is especially being directed at Europe, if they criticize this operation, he will unleash 3.6 million Syrian refugees that currently reside in Turkey, meaning he will open the gate once again of the European refugee trail. He uh, is not listening it would seem to any of his allies he is not seeming to be taking any sort of criticism we now have uh russia's voice being added president putin is voicing his concern that this offensive could allow isis to re-emerge re-strengthen uh once again because inside syria the forces on the ground, those Kurdish uh, forces, the YPG, that were being backed by the uh, U.S.-led coalition, they were the main fighting force against ISIS. They have now suspended that operation. They are the ones who are guarding all of the camps and prisons uh, that hold either former ISIS fighters or their families. They are saying that they have had to pull back forces from those positions to bring them to this battleground. So it's a very violent situation, Julia. A war is always ugly and does claim casualties on all sides. We've had uh, mortar artillery rounds inside these Turkish border towns as well that killed uh, children just yesterday. And it doesn't seem like Juliet's going to be ending anytime soon.
1: No, it certainly doesn't. Oh, well, fantastic to have you with us, our Damon there. All right, we're back in two. Stay with us. move another busy week in crypto land and first move is watching how about this if you're looking for positive vibrations unicef the united nations children's fund has made a move into the crypto world setting up a fund accepting donations from both bitcoin and ethereum such enthusiasm for crypto is echoed by our next guest he predicts bitcoin will spike up to twenty thousand dollars within eighteen months mike Novogratz is the ceo and chairman of galaxy digital and joins us now great to have you with us thank you very much that's um Optimistic? Listen, I
2: think.
7: UNICEF saying we'll take crypto. Lots of charities and foundations and the endowments are saying, you want to give us money? You can give us Bitcoin, you can give us Ethereum, you can give us Apple stock. And so it's just more and more people accepting Bitcoin as a financial asset.
1: This is what we need to see greater mainstream adoption, better understanding is people like charities saying, look, you know, we're going to be a bit more adventurous with what we accept as well. Charity's charity.
7: And listen, there are some endowments. So some charities will take the Bitcoin, they'll sell it and put it into dollars because they're more conservative. But there's some endowments, the Yale endowment, you know, famously, uh, because usually where Yale goes, all the rest of the endowments follow. They've made investments in Bitcoin. Yale, Harvard, Stanford have all invested in venture funds that both own Bitcoin and own, you know, venture properties in the space.
1: You have a whole different career as a a macro investor in traditional assets, let's call them that. And then obviously a a second career in crypto and, as you said, a sort of expert and become an expert in this field in particular. One of the strongest arguments I see people making today is that we're seeing a debasement of currencies. We're seeing central banks around the world printing money. It's one of the strongest arguments for investing in an alternative asset like crypto. Would you agree with that?
7: 100 percent. Listen, we are in a very strange macro environment when Greece is raising money at negative interest rates. We talked
1: about it. (laughs) uh,
7: You're like, wait a minute. I look back Just in the last five years, there are 40 emerging market currencies that have devalued more than 40 percent. And so, if you look back, you know, in real terms, even the U.S. dollar is down 96 percent in 100 years. Uh, In the last thousand years, no, no one currency stayed the reserve currency more than basically 100, 125 years and we're, we're at that we're at that level almost in the US. And so we've got geopolitical uncertainty, we've got negative rates. Uh, it's all bullish for gold, you know, and it's bullish for Bitcoin.
1: You know, it's interesting. I call the International Monetary Fund crypto curious, they've cited specifically that, the idea that a country around the world could shift and see predominant use of a cryptocurrency rather than their own as a risk rather than as a benefit.
7: Well, listen. Th- there's and you've got to be careful so like china already broadly has a digital currency and they're working on a crypto wand uh they've got alipay and wechat that everybody buys everything on in china and they're rolling that out to countries abroad china's got huge effort in africa in south america and so one reason i think that our our uh, regulators and our, our government should be more willing to look at things like the Facebook Libra program is because it's an arms race. And you know, when you look at the, the predominance of the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency, uh, that gets put at risk real quick if everybody's buying and selling things on Alipay.
1: India is another country that's looking at a digital coin as well, a digital stable coin. Just to throw another country in there, why is it an arms race? What is the risk here if the likes of China or India manage to adopt and foster this technology quicker than the United States, for an example?
7: Well, so, and you've got to be a little careful, this gets nuanced. A centralized cryptocurrency is a really, really dangerous proposition because cryptocurrencies are programmable money. So if you think China's version of cryptocurrency is, it's centralized, they own it. Uh, They have amazing technology already uh, because 95% of Chinese payments are done on phones. All of those phones get pushed into a a shared database that the government forces. So Alibaba, WeChat, they all take all your spending data and give it to a government clearinghouse. You now take AI and machine-based learning, you plug it into that clearinghouse, and you know a lot about a lot of people. It didn't exist five years ago. If you had all the spending data in the world, we couldn't do much with it. But now you put computers to it, and they know who's gay and who's not gay, to, to, to a man and a woman. And so, okay, if you're a liberal country, great, but if you get a new ruler who decides he doesn't like gays, and it's a digital, I mean, it's a crypto currency, centralised, he could shut their money off overnight. You think about what's going on in Hong Kong with the protests right now? Facial recognition cameras everywhere, let's just shut their money off. That
1: kind of power is very dangerous. It's
7: really why we need decentralised systems. Uh, You're seeing it perfectly right now in this China situation. and quite frankly, when I look at China, Hong Kong, I think I know how it's going to end. And it's not going to end with tanks rolling in the street. It's going to end what they call white terror, that they're going to slowly say, you know, that guy doesn't get credit anymore, or that doesn't get a job anymore. And so we're, we're in a world that is crying out living for decentralized systems
1: to um, I want to sort of make a tangent here and it's something that I know you've discussed and it's very important to me I think in this regard when I talk to people about cryptocurrencies and it doesn't matter which one I'm talking about this story or the definition of what it is changes, and it infuriates me. And the other thing that infuriates me is, particularly on social media, the, the interaction between people who like XRP and I believe in XRP, Ripple, or those that like Bitcoin or... And there's they, sort of a fight. Yes. If we want to see mainstream adoption, don't we need to be more inclusive and recognize that adoption of one, understanding of one, is 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 good for all?
7: I think people should nominate me chairman of the galaxy. Oh, there we go. Because uh, <laughs> well, I think I, I I see things pretty clearly. I think Bitcoin is the only cryptocurrency that really has won the store of value lane. Gold, gold's got a $9 trillion market cap. You can fit all the gold that's ever been mined a 25 meter cube. It's valuable because we say it's valuable. All the rest of the elements on the periodic table, right? There are 114 elements. They're valuable because we use them. I think Bitcoin is going to be valuable just because we say it's valuable, but the rest of the cryptocurrencies are going to need to be used. And it's going to take a while for those economies uh, to develop, right? We had a bubble, they all went up because they were all the next Bitcoin. Cryptocurrencies are not all the next Bitcoin. It doesn't mean. The Ethereum project isn't an awesome project, and in three or four and five years, it could be a spectacular project and will have a huge amount of value, but it's not going to get valued the same way Bitcoin does.
1: So there's an interaction between a good store of value and good for transactional purposes, and one doesn't necessarily lead to the other. I've got a million more questions for you, but there's also another important subject that we're going to get to. Mike Nabogratz is staying with us. Coming up after this, we're going to be getting real about the real act and talking U.S. prison reform, because it's something close to Mike's heart. Stay with us. We're back in too. show. Earlier, we spoke to uh, Mike Novogratz on all things crypto, but he's joining us again now to talk about something else he's passionate about, and that is prison reform and what he calls the prison to school pipeline in an op ed on CNN.com. And I'll tweet it out later. He says it's been sabotaged. Here in the United States, nearly half of all people released from prison return there within three years. But it doesn't have to be this way. Mike, why this? Why are you so passionate about this?
7: You know, I stumbled onto to the issue really first with bail, and the more I dug in, the more outraged I got. Uh, and so it's one of these things around fairness. I think I grew up thinking everything should be fair. It was maybe naive. Uh, and you know, our our criminal justice system is unfair. It's unjust. Uh, it's punitive. It's mean spirited. Uh, it's really a scourge on our democracy, and so there are so many facets of it that need changing. We need a complete overhaul. And broadly, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we want to lock people in cages for whatever reason they're in there and leave them to rot and pay for them for the rest of our lives, or do we want to help rehabilitate them? And help them come back and be a, you know, do do we believe in redemption in this country?
1: I mean, there was something, if you go back to the 1960s, called Pell Grants, which allowed people who'd been incarcerated in the United States, put in prison to get access to effective college education. They allowed Themselves to be educated, they were given access to the money to do it. It then, as a result of law change in the '90s, was yeah. lost or petered out. And you're saying, bring this back. Yeah. Let these people have access to Listen, college education.
7: The the, uh, the crime bill in, in, in the mid '90s, uh, you know, Joe Biden's got a lot of flack for it because he was part of it. You know, different time, but but it was a horrible bill. It built a lot of new prisons. It, just, it literally stripped out Pell grants for for uh, people that are incarcerated. That's insane. There's a 43% less chance of coming back to prison if you've gotten educated in prison. And so just economically, it's insane. Morally, it's insane.
1: Wait, pull that stat out again. So just under 50% of people tend to end up back in prison within three years without any fundamental change to their education. However, if they're educated in prison.
7: There's 43% less. 43% less yes.
1: end up back in prison within three
7: years. And 12% get jobs faster. And so essentially, I would have thought the job seems would have been easier, but it's hard for people who are coming out of prison to get jobs. Employers don't want to hire them. Starting to change, given that we have a 3.5% unemployment rate. Right. And there's the winds of change in this country on, on the whole criminal justice thing are happening. There's a tailwind for the first time in 30 years uh, i i know 15 20 billionaires that have thrown their weight behind this movement uh, four years ago when I first got involved there was about a hundred million dollars a year philanthropy coming into the space today that's 600 million wow and so guys like Michael Rubin uh, from fanatics and Dan Loeb uh, and Robert Kraft uh, John Arnold's the, the, the heavyweight in the space I mean guys that made their fortunes on Wall Street or in industry all are looking at this and saying it makes no economic sense and it makes no moral sense
1: cost what would the cost be of providing this education and can you do a net can you net out the, the cost of the fact that you keep having to put these prison people I in prison again and they reoffend? And these are not hurt?
7: forty thousand dollar grants these are six eight uh, thousand dollar educations or even less remember people in prison have no money half the reason that's why they're in prison Uh, We set up the bail project because 60% of America doesn't have $1,000 in savings. And so if you get arrested for something and they give you $800 bail, not only can you not pay it, you don't even have a friend to call. Like, that's why our country's in crisis.
1: There will be people who are listening to this and go, hang on a second, you know, I, I can't afford to send my children to, to school, I work two, three jobs. Um, why should people who've committed bad acts, who are in prison, be given access to an education that perhaps they can't afford for their children? Well,
7: I mean, if you can just be economic about it, do you want to pay for that person for the rest of his life, or do you want him to be able to learn to fish? Uh, and then for themselves. Forget the moral argument. There's an economic argument right. that's really strong and powerful. It's quite frankly one of the reasons this is the most bipartisan issue. It's the only bipartisan issue right now. Uh, I was laughing, you know, I had a panel at my house and I had Jared Kushner uh, on one side and, you know, Desmond Meade, who ran the Florida Restoration Act on the other. And, you know, they're talking. They agreed on this. And they're agreeing on
1: this. <laughs> um, the real act, I mentioned it, something that's going through Congress right now. How likely is it that we see bipartisan action to provide this kind of funding just as your, to your point on an, on an economic basis? I think it's,
7: I think it's likely. listen we, we had the first step act, right you know my buddy Van Jones uh, really was one of the, the spearheaders of that and, and no one thought it could get done. Uh, I mean that Van Jones and Donald Trump would be in the White House you know, smiling next to each other is, is shocking. That's a, yeah good it's image. shocking. So you have to have imagination. Uh, There's momentum there. Will it it get done in in this political environment in the next few months, I don't know. Uh, But I would tell you, in the next 18 months, two years, you're gonna see a lot of things
1: change. And ultimately, improving people's lives, lowering reoffending rates, and to your point, people who perhaps didn't have any form of advantage of education starting out get the chance later on.
7: I had a a party at my house at an event two nights ago, and there was a young 32-year-old kid who had been arrested when he was 16 years old for murder. Uh, in Los Angeles, and he got clemency from the government after spending 16 years in jail. He was an amazing artist, and spent a lot of time with him. and He, was a, he had become a beautiful soul. He had taken complete ownership of his mistakes, and his, he felt horrible about it. And you've got to ask yourself: Are you are you, are we our worst moments, or are we going to learn to forgive? And after a guy is paid a certain, you know, do you? Due, let him move on. He is going to be an amazingly productive member of society. Uh, he's going to bring joy to people. He's going to help people. And so uh, that's the world I want to live in. And I think our country does. I think at our core, our country really is good. Uh, and we got to get away from this kind of mean-spirited punishment cycle.
1: Oh, we our worst moments. No, we're not. Like... It's a great cause to fight for Mike Novogratz, the CEO and chairman of Gallatin Digital. And we'll get you back to talk both, actually. Progress on this and crypto, of course, too. All right. So let me bring you up to speed with today's boardroom brief. Finally, Renault getting its second CEO in less than a year. As its boardroom turmoil continues, the French car maker has appointed its finance director to take over as interim boss. She replaces Thierry Valore, who is appointed after Carlos Ghosn was arrested in Japan on financial misconduct allegations. But and porsche teaming up to develop an electric flying car yes you heard that right the two firms say they want to explore the premium urban air mobility market but their announcement didn't include any details on when any vehicle would take off or how much it would cost or anything yes detail light spacex and nasa could be sending people into space together as early as 2020 nasa has clashed publicly with spacex ceo elon musk last month over delays to the project nasa says it's now very confident that the crew dragon spacecraft could be ready to send astronauts into orbit next year now final on good vibrations too. Before we go, President Trump tweeting on China. Good things are happening at China trade talk meetings. Warmer feelings than in the recent past and more like the old days. I'll be meeting with the vice premier today. All would like to see something significant happen. We shall see it. No, we shall believe it when we see it. (laughs) Look, I'm getting mixed up. It's a good show. Positive vibrations, I said to you, potential. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Moon. It's time to go make yours. Have a great weekend.
6: Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash country.
1: Max subscription required.